So listen, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in to our service today. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Lord, we thank you that you are the true joy of the world. You are the light of the world, and you bring joy in the midst of chaos. Lord, we pray that you would use us. We pray that you would bless the rest of this service in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, why don't you say amen? amen. You know, many people refer to this season as the most wonderful time of the year. Right? We love Christmas lightings and holiday cards, Pollyannas, uh, and a myriad of other things. I almost said white Santa at the first service, and I messed it up. It's like a gift exchange thing. What was it, white elephant? White elephant. I said white Santa, so please don't be mad with me. And so we love giving and receiving gifts. We love nativity scenes, right? But there's some of you um, that really don't love the Christmas season that much. Let's be honest. Because, like, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. It's a, it's a year or it's a time or season where it can be very, very discouraging. It's discouraging because maybe, I don't know, you're grieving a loved one. Somebody you really love that you were tight with or you were close with, you were expecting them, um, to, you were hoping that they were going to be with you, but they passed away and you're mourning that. Uh, maybe you're estranged from your family and you're really sad about not having a great relationship with them that you once hoped. Or maybe you're dealing with so, what some people call holiday loneliness. And so in order to cope with that, you just say yes to everything. If it's a holiday party, you say yes to it. If it's a, going to a, a reef lighting, whatever, you go to it. But deep down inside, though your heart, though you're filled with wonder about the, the celebratory season, deep down you're a little discouraged for all that's happening. And so on top of that, some of us are experiencing stress because let's be honest, um, the holiday seasons are a stressful time. They can be stressful. There's this ever-expanding to-do list, and there's this ever-expanding Christmas list that seems to keep on growing week after week. You're like, hey, listen, I don't have the money to get you the gift that I wanted to this year. You, you're just going to have to get this IOU. I'll see you in tax season because I can't give you right now. I can't just blow through my budget like that. But maybe you're feeling a little bit of sadness and a little bit of joy, but I want to let you know that no matter the challenge you're facing today, God is inviting you to be a part of a gift exchange of another kind. He's inviting you to exchange your hopelessness and your sadness for real hope and tangible happiness in this season, and I think he's going to show it to us through our passage this morning. So why don't you join me this morning? I'm in Matthew, the first chapter, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I'm going to read it for you hearing. This is probably one of your favorite passages, I'm sure. I'm sure you've read this a thousand times. This is how it goes. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered King David, and from David to the Babylonian exile. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. That's interesting. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jothan. Jothan fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered 
Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amnon. Amnon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. And from the exile of the Messiah, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Elikim. Elikim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Elihud. Elihud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Therein ends the reading of God's word. We can just go on home. That should provide you plenty of hope right there. Now, listen, before we get started, I have a few shocking admissions. I have never watched a Die Hard movie before. Okay. All right. Somebody boo. Uh, never watched a Star Wars movie. Uh, never seen Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings. And I, but I have watched every Friday. Praise God, somebody. Watch everyone. I watch every uh, Avatar, even though it's about colonialism, these folks coming from another world, coming into this world and trying to take it over. I watched the new one, uh, but it was too long, so I walked out after about about three hours. It got to be too much. I said, I'll catch the reviews online. I'm just going to be honest with you, right? And even though I know, I get it, there are storied franchises, right? They gross billions and billions of dollars, but can I just be honest? It's kind of not my thing. And you can kind of tell when things are not your thing after about five minutes or so. And I could tell by the reading of that genealogy that perhaps genealogies are not your thing. I can tell. You know, like, now, listen, at least there's some nice baby names in here. Shealtiel, Hezron, Jeconiah, right? If, you, if anybody names any of their children that, I'm sorry, you just can't be a part of this church. I mean, we're going to have to usher you on that. But, like... We're not really into genealogies like that. And I can understand because, I mean, it's a lot of names. We want to skip to the good part. And then many of those names, unless you are very, very versed in the Old Testament, they don't really mean a lot to us. But on top of that, many of the names of the people in here are in between what we call the intertestamental period. And so they're largely unknown. That's the period between the close of the old and the beginning of the new. So we don't know who they are, right? But even though we fall asleep, While they're being read, let me just tell you that to the original audience, this was powerful. They loved genealogies. Like, this was the good part. Because genealogies introduce you to who you are. They introduce you to your life story, where you've come from. And the Jews would do this anytime they were trying to buy land. They would compare the genealogies, and they would make sure that the person buying the land was from the same tribe so they wouldn't traverse any ancient tribal boundaries. If they were trying to, like, get a priest, they want to check his genealogy. And they did all of this because they were making sure that they didn't compromise the boundaries that God has drawn. And so you might be here wondering, okay, you read a genealogy on Christmas. How in the world is this going to provide me hope? I'm so glad that you asked. I've got two points, and my second point has three subpoints. Are you ready for it? Here's the first point. I love this one. Uh, didn't go over too well in the first service, but uh, it's a good point. Here it is. It shows... God is not a virtue signaler. It shows God's not a virtue signaler. Um, In 2014, how many of you guys remember the ice water, uh, the ice bucket challenge? Right? It seems like that was a, a few years ago, but it was a long time ago, apparently. And people were taking water, pouring it over their head, and they would nominate somebody else to do the challenge. And then they had to do it within 24 hours. And what we find out from Brian Fredericks, the vice president of communications for the ALS Association, is that 17 million people participated in this challenge online. 
and that, and that 2.5 million people contributed or donated, and it, and it ended up amassing or raising $115 million. It was helpful because on, on top of that, it funded 130 research projects over 12 countries. That's amazing, isn't it? All from dumping water over your head. Here's my question, though. If 17 million people participated in it, how come only 2.5 million people contributed to it? Is that a fair question? What in the world happened to the 14.5 million people that participated in it? And I think what happened was that this was showing that there's another prevalent trend in our society, and we would call that virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. It says that it's easy to say that we care about a cause, but not really do anything about it to make a practical difference, right? So it's like when you change your profile picture online to align with a specific cause, like you want people to know that you're on the right side of the issue, but deep down, you know you're not going to do anything about it, right? Is that true? Right? Like, it's like tweeting our outrage and using all the hashtags. Like, yeah, we get angry, but it's more of a public policy to affirm the sentiment um, and to show people we're on the right side of the, the issue, but really we're not doing much at all. And so where we spend our time and the issue we say we care about are actually diametrically opposed. And so what I'm saying is before the birth of Jesus, however, some people could argue that Jesus or that God the Father was a virtue signaler, that he said he cared about humanity, but what he said he cared about and what he actually did didn't align together. Can I explain it to you real quick? Is that all right? Can I be your seminary professor for about, uh, about two minutes and you won't, you won't zone out on me like you did when we were reading the, uh, the, the genealogies? Is that all right? Okay. Okay. Because listen, I, I'm telling you, I'll have you stand up and stretch before we do it if we need to. Okay. Let me just explain this to you. I'm going to catch you up in the history. I'm going to show you how Jesus, how God the Father is not a virtue signal. Here it is. In the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, Genesis just means beginning. It's, it's the retelling or the creative retelling of creation. If you know anything about Genesis, it's really what we would call an, a polemic or an apologetic. Because there was another creation account out there by the Babylonians called the Enuma Amish. And it said that the gods, uh, they, 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 they uh, consummated their relationship and had mankind. But Moses was like, nah, nah, that's not how it happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't come together because some esoteric spiritual beings decide to bring it into focus. He's like, no, no, let me tell you the real story of creation. And so the real story of creation is God had an earth, heavenly family already. He was up there hanging out in heaven in the other world, just, just chilling with Jesus and the spirit and all the angels. And then he said, you know what? I've got a heavenly family. I want an earthly family. And so he creates Adam from the dust of the ground. And so he makes Adam and then he takes Adam and he blows the breath of life into him. And then Adam is up there naming the animals. That means before he even met Eve, he had a job. He was naming the animals. Before he even met Eve, he had a purpose. He was subduing the earth and taking control of it, over it, under the auspices of God the Father. And then God was like, hey, listen, it's not good that you're alone. So I'm going to create what he calls an Azar Nagad, which is a helpmeet, a warrior to come alongside you so that you can accomplish this task as soon as possible. And so he creates Eve, and Adam just gets so struck by Eve, even though he didn't have a father and a mother, he just starts writing a song. 
I mean, he just, he says, man, father, and he said, uh, he was like, man, uh, I, he was, I forgot the name. It was in Genesis 2.24. So he's saying uh, he was excited. He saw this is woman. This is flesh of my flesh. This is bone of my bone. Therefore, shall a man leave his mother and father and shall be one flesh with his own wife. So that man is excited. Like, he's writing every lyric down, right? He's like, man, you are beautiful. I want you. Amen. And so then God said, listen, I want you to enjoy your marriage. I want you to enjoy your relationship. But I just don't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because as soon as you eat that, you will die. That's what he lets them know. And so you know how it goes. Eventually, they decided that they're going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what happens. What happens is brokenness then comes into God's world. So brokenness comes into God's world through this thing called sin. And you and I inherit something called a sin nature. A sin nature is that side of you that you know just wants to do its own thing and establish its own authority outside of God. You know what I'm talking about? Where you just want to gratify you. It's rebellious. It's the side of you that's very rebellious against God. That's what he's describing as. And so he comes, sin impacts and fractures God's world. It causes power struggles. It causes the earth to be in chaos, widespread and systemic evil. And God has something called the wrath of God because of it. He's angered by this because we vandalized and defiantly did so his broken world. Now, some of y'all are like, well, why, is this, why does it seem like God is mad? Well, let me just, let's just go down your street for a second. Say you just got your dream home. Anybody get on Zillow and look at houses you can't afford, and then the next thing you know, get mad when it gets sold, even though you know you don't have the money to afford it? Oh, it's just me. It's just me in here. You look up the house like, oh, that flat sold. Even though you didn't have any intention of getting a mortgage, spending any money, or anything like that, you were just like, but just imagine you got your dream home. You walk into your dream home, it's beautiful. You got new countertops and new cabinets, hallelujah. You got a new bathroom with the heated floors underneath. So you just walk into your bathroom and it's just radiating heat. Just imagine, just imagine that. You know, you got a new basement, you got a 95-inch TV, even though they don't even make those. So you can watch the Eagles win the Super Bowl, hallelujah, somebody. Like, like you're doing it. You got a nice house. People are like, hey, you know, we really want to put this in magazines. It's that beautiful. It's featured on IG and everything, and you're walking around proud as you can be because the house is beautiful. Now, just imagine you invite someone into your beautiful, newly constructed house, and they spray paint the walls. Woo! Imagine they just took a knife and cut up all the upholstery. Imagine they took a sledgehammer and knocked down the cabinets and destroyed the counter mount. How would you feel? You would be hot, would you not? You, I'm, 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 I was born in 85, so we would say, you would have to see me. We are going to throw the hands. We might say, you, want, you have to shoot me the fair one because we got to deal with this then and there. But imagine they did all that and wanted to be friends with you. Are y'all hearing me? Imagine they destroyed your house, wanted to be friends with you, and then don't have the money to really pay you back. You would be upset about that, would you not? Well, in a small way, in a, in a much larger way, that's what we did to God's creation. We deface his creation. We cause billions of people to be, it be polluted by billions of people. It infects everything. So God is like, man, we're in a real predicament here, are we not? Because I want to be your father, but I also have to be your judge because you owe me a debt of sin. I want to be your father and love you and welcome you into my family. But on the other hand, I can't just sweep what you did under the rug. What am I going to do about it? So I'm getting there. Just don't check out on me yet. So he expulsed them from the, he expulsed them from the garden. Then there's a worldwide flood. On top of that, then they're in Egypt and they're in bondage. God hears them and lets them go. And he says, how can I be close to my people and cleanse them? 
but at the same time know that they're going to keep on sinning. What am I going to do? So God institutes something called animal sacrifices. Now, I know when I talk about animal sacrifices on Christmas in particular, that it disturbs our sensibilities. I know particularly to my vegans in the building, they can't imagine the slaughtered cow and all that type of stuff, pig, all those things offered. And so, so what they did, though, what an animal sacrifice was, was it was a visceral symbol of the devastating impact of sin. It was a sign. But not only that, it was a symbolic meaning of how this animal died so that you, can, you and I could live. So in other words, the blood of bulls and goats and a myriad of other things, those animals died so that the person, so that God's wrath could be averted and so they can live. Sometimes there would be a scapegoat. You ever heard of a scapegoat? A scapegoat was when they would, the priest would take his hands and put it onto the hands of the, of the ram. And they would transfer the guilt onto that particular ram and then lead it into the desert. And it was symbolic of how the sins and the things that the people have done has been transferred onto the ram. And it was sent out there into the desert. Are y'all with me, church? I'm coming. Here, here's the hope. Now, somebody would say, well, God is a virtue signaler. Because he knows that the blood, of, the blood of bulls and goats and the myriad of other things cannot take away from the sin because you have to continually sacrifice time and time again. And God was like, you know what? I got something for you. Because I'm going to send uh, a, another lamb called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And the Lamb of God comes in the form of Jesus. Jesus tucks in his Shekinah or his glory into a human suit. He's born through the womb of a virgin Mary. That's why he's born in a manger, because it is symbolic of him being a lamb. He's a lamb that's perfect in nature, and he offers himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So all of our sin and guilt is transferred on Jesus instead of us having to pay for it on our own. Are y'all hearing me today, church? And it shows that God is not a virtue signaler because he became the ultimate sacrifice for our sin that's a good thing isn't it well check this out it doesn't mean anything if he's not a real person if he's not a real person if he was not born through a real womb then he's a truncated metaphysical reality that really doesn't do anything to save us from the predicament that we're in and so the reason that Matthew starts off with what we call a genealogy is to let you know that he is not an aberration. He's not a metaphysical reality. He's a real person with real parents that died a real death on the cross of Calvary that took all of the sin that you and I owe and transferred it to Jesus. Let me just tell you, that's the real gift exchange, that he exchanged my unholiness for his righteousness. That he exchanged my sin for his righteousness. That he exchanges all these things. All I'm trying to tell you, friends is that Jesus, God the Father will be a virtue signaler if he did not bring us a real solution. Now, somebody might be wondering, well, Christmas is wonderful, right? It's great. It's a, it's a great time, but here's what I want you to know. If you don't have that baby in the manger, there's no atonement for sin. And that means that all the songs we sang and all that stuff, we, we're just wasting our time. If we don't have a baby in swaddling clothing that will become and take on the sins of the world. You and I are wasting our time, but thanks be to God that he didn't just drop out of heaven. Like he has a real, he has real parentage and Jesus was born in the manger in the dirt so he can remove the filth of our sin from us. And friends, let me just tell you, that is why we can have hope for this holiday. Here's the second one. It's his hope because he provided hope for your family. He provided hope for your family. So you got hope for your salvation. Now you have hope for your family. I don't know about you, but um, 
Many of us did not grow up in what we can describe as uh, a harmonious household. Right? You didn't have the, the perfect scenario where you had a mother and a father and you had two kids and a, a white picket fence and they, those things. You may, you may not have had that, right? Some of us grew up, if you did have that, shout out to you. Bless God. We're so happy for you. But maybe you grew up in what we could describe as a dysfunctional household. And in a dysfunctional household, parents are emotionally mature because they're immature because they're caught up in their own pursuits. And I would say that in dysfunctional households, the needs of the children often get overlooked because the needs of the parents take precedent. Anybody know what I'm talking about in here? And so what happens in households like that is the pain is compounded because there's a culture of secrecy in those homes where the children cannot talk about what they're experiencing because if they did, they would experience punishment for their parents because of it. And so what little children end up doing is rather than being honest about the pain, what they do is they take these old and nasty secrets and they harbor them in their soul. And eventually that becomes, that starts to weigh them down and they think that secrecy is the way, not transparency. Are y'all hearing me? And so let's be honest, some of us, some of our families have more secrets in them than the U.S. government. And we know that the U.S. government has some secrets. Uh, We also have so many skeletons in the closet that some of us could start a morgue, right? So so what he's he's letting us know is that if if you want freedom today, some of us are going to have to let go of those family secrets that we have gone so far to conceal. But let me just help you real quick from this passage. In Matthew 1, what we find is a genealogy, and a genealogy is kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a resume. You know how when you have a resume, uh, you want to highlight that you worked at a specific place, but you might not talk about how you lost a job at the other place, right? You talk about how, you know, like, hey, I worked here, and it shows that I'm qualified for the job, but don't look at this necessarily, because I, was, I wasn't forced to resign, but I decided to resign, right? Wink, wink. I decided to resign. Like, we pick and choose what we want to highlight on our resumes, right? We pick and choose that. So what they did with these genealogies is the same thing, is they would pick and choose who they wanted to highlight on the resume, on their, on their genealogy. They'd be like, yo, don't you know that I'm from Abraham? Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, you from Abraham? Mm-hmm. You see that? But you don't want to be from Elihu, who was ungodly and unholy, right? You'd be like, oh, don't you see I'm from Isaac? You see how I'm doing that right there? But we don't want to be from Ahab, right? Some, so this, this is what happens. So they would get rid of the people in their genealogy that they didn't want in there, and they would highlight the people that they did want. Are y'all with me? And so some of us wish that we could do the same thing. We wish that we could edit out and expose some people from our genealogy right now. We, there are some people in your family that grind your gears so bad you just want to kick them out of the family. You're tired of dealing with them. You done tried to help them a thousand million hundred and seventy eight thousand times and they keep doing the same thing over and over again. You done got them out of jail multiple times. You've paid for their car note, made sure you covered their rent and a myriad of other times and every time you try to save them they go back to doing the very same thing. And so some of us are like, I just wish I could kick you out of my family like the old ancient Jews would do here. Some of us are hiding some ancient secrets right now about stuff that has happened and it's just been harboring in our soul. Listen, if you want to experience freedom today, here's my first sub point. You got to expose those family secrets. You cannot experience freedom and liberation if you're if you are committed to living a lie. Are y'all with me, church? 
So it's burdening. Like, let's think about it like this. It's burdening your conscience. Some of us are experiencing the weight of pressure right now because we've been harboring lies in our hearts about people and situations. This is what author Danny Shapiro says. She says, secrets fester in the darkness. They grow larger and scarier, and they have the power to shape our lives without us even knowing it. But if you shine the light on those secrets, the most extraordinary things happen. We realize that we are not alone. So remember this. Remember this. And Jesus really explains it in this, in this uh, genealogy. Because in this time, genealogies meant so much. But you would rarely include women in the genealogy because they lived in a very patriarchal society, right? Sinful patriarchal society. So you're probably wondering, well, if you did include females, you would want to include those that, had, that were high in stature. And so you were like, Jesus, uh, or Matthew who wrote this, why don't you include Sarah in this? Because Sarah was married to Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith. Matthew was like, nah, I don't want to include them. You'd be like, well, well what about Rebecca? And what about Rachel? Because weren't they the fathers of the 12, Israel, the 12 Israelite families, the 12 patriarchs? Why don't we include them? Jesus is like, nah, we're not going to include them. He's like, well, why, well who are we going to include? He's like, we're going to include the nastiest, most sordid family people in the family tree to show people that you can come from a bad tree but still turn out as good fruit. And so he says, let me just tell you. He's like, let, he's like let, matter of fact, let's let air out all the tea today. I'm going to tell you all the tea in Jesus' family line. This would have read, get this, like a gossip column. You, you get that? This is like reading this genealogy is like getting on TMZ. It's like getting on media takeout or whatever the other, well, all the other ones. It's like getting on there. They're reading this and scratching their head like, why in the world would you include the nastiest stories in your timeline when you don't have to? There's like, yo, let's start with Tamar. Tamar, her father-in-law was Judah. In that ancient Near Eastern society, when when Tamar's husband died, and Judah was supposed to have his brother marry Tamar so that when the children are born, they have an established heritage. And so so they don't have to go back for protection and myriad of other things. And so Judah refuses to do it. He's like, I'm not doing it. So she was like, all right, I'm going to show you something. So she gets on the side of the road dresses like a prostitute. In those days, they would veil their faces. Judah sees her and decides that he's going to copulate. He's going to have sex with the young lady. Gets her pregnant. Once she gets pregnant, the people in the town say, yo, don't you know that, you're, don't you know that Tamar's pregnant? And he's like, bring her out because we're going to stone her. It's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You didn't want to give her justice by giving her married into your family, but now you want to give her execution because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And so what happens is Judah... Brings her out, and she says, well, hey, listen, before you stone me or burn me at the stake, here's what I want to ask. Um, whose ring does this belong to? Whose staff does this belong to? Then he realizes, oh, that's mine. That's mine. So in her doing, I know that that sounds surrogate in our lifestyle, but in our, in our culture, but that is something that was a part of Jesus' line. Why do you think Matthew told it? Because most of us wouldn't want anybody to know that story. We would have wanted to keep that under the wraps. But he's like, no, no, I want it all told because we're not living a life of secrecy. Then he mentions Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. He mentions her in the lab. He mentions her in the genealogy. And she becomes a mother of Jesus. Then they mention Bathsheba. Bathsheba, David, 
had sex with Bathsheba's wife. He raped her. They had a baby, and, and, they gave, and the baby's name was Solomon. The first baby died, but Solomon was a, another child. And so you see what I'm saying here, family? is that this is some of the nastiest, most sordid stories that we can find in all the Bible, and it's right there in the first page in the New Testament. Stop telling me that the Bible is a story of all superheroes. It's a story of broken people like you and I that need grace and whom we can learn from their stories so we don't repeat the same mistakes. It's not a Bible. So, but let me just tell you this. It encourages us because Jesus is born in a dark womb. Jesus is born in the dirt in a dark night in a dimly lit barn. But out of that came the light of the world and it shined through. What, what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying it means that God does his best work in darkness. And that if you are trying to conceal the darkness of these secrets, what I'm telling you is that the best thing you can do is to expose them to the light of Christ so that you can experience freedom and joy and liberation that God always wanted you to have not to live in bondage. Are y'all with me today, church? Here's the second thing because I got to roll. Here's the second thing. You're not doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. You're not doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. I, re- I run into a lot of people, and these two points are going to go together, but I run into a lot of people that say things like, I, am, I, am ex- I don't want to repeat my dad's mistake. I, I don't want to do the same. I don't want to be the man that my dad was. He left my family, so I don't want to be like my dad and leave my family. Somebody might say, oh, I don't want to become an alcoholic. and I don't want to be an addict like my family. I don't want to do these things. I don't want to just chase women or chase men or be chemically addicted. I don't want to do any of those things. But let me just tell you, Jesus' family story says that you are not doomed to repeat those things because Asa did not repeat the mistakes of his father Abijah. Hezekiah didn't do the wicked things that Ahaz did. Josiah didn't perpetuate the evil of Amnon. What I'm saying is that Jesus was born into a dysfunctional family and he had multiple generations of male and female delinquency He had adulterers and adulteresses. He had incestuous relationships, prostitutes, murderers, rapists. All of them are in Jesus' line. But Matthew includes this to let us know that you don't have to make the same mistakes as your father. You don't have to be like your mother. You don't have to be like your auntie. You don't have to be like your great-great-grandfather. You can experience freedom from divorce, from pessimism, from greed, from anger, from hostility, from infighting in your family. When you put your faith in Jesus, are y'all with me today, church? And this is the last thing I want to say, and it also proves that Jesus breaks generational curses. I run into a lot, a lot of people that think that they're living under a curse right now, especially people that follow Jesus. They say things like, I'm under a generational curse, or I'm under a genealogical curse, or whatever you want to call it, right? But let me just tell you something. When you trust in Jesus, you immediately begin to put your trust in a hex-breaking, generational, curse-destroying, spell-binding God named Jesus. Because in Galatians 3.13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. It means that on the cross, Jesus became the curse so that you and I could be a blessing. He experienced all of the pain, all of the shame. I don't care what your grandmother said about you. I don't care what your mother said about you telling you that she, you're not going to be successful and you'll never bear children and you'll never get married. Or maybe your dad said that you're just going to be like your daddy. Let me just tell you something. Your mom is not Jesus. 
Your father is not the Holy Ghost. They are not the author and finisher of your faith. So don't you internalize those words because all it means is that they're broken in need of grace too. And let me just tell you, if I could be like my, my Pentecostal expressive friends for a little bit, I would tell you that's why I ain't worried about no witch. I'm not worried about no warlock. I'm not worried about no voodoo priestess, no babalawo, no powers of darkness. Because in my Bible, Colossians 2.15, it says, and having disarmed them, the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them on in the cross of Calvary. What I'm saying is on the cross, all of Jesus' enemies tried to defeat him. But what we learn is three days later, he got up with all power in his hand. Death was like, I got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've got Jaconiah and Hezron and Ezekiel. I've got all of the patriots, patriarchs, but there's something about Jesus that I just can't contain. And that's why my Jesus got up with all power in his hands. He folded up that grave. He folded up that grave clothes like a Zara shirt. He said, let me just put this here. And he moved that thing, that tomb right on out of the way and stepped out with all power in his hands. And he still had the wounds in his side, which shows that you can experience new life and you can still have the scars of the past. But the scars are a reminder that God can deliver you and help you no matter what you've been through. Some of y'all ain't praising God enough right there. He delivered you. I don't care what anybody said about your life, church. I don't care what they declared. Christmas means that there is hope for you, that there is healing because that two-legged baby named Jesus became that animal sacrifice for each and every one of us. He became what we would describe as a propitiation for us, meaning the wrath of God was diverted away from us and diverted on Jesus so that you and I could experience the newness of life. And so if you want real hope for the holidays, here's what I want you to do. I want to encourage you to trust Jesus today. Like there's hope for your family. There's hope for your relationships. There's hope for you to be free from them secrets. There's hope for you to experience healing from the past. But that happens after you put your faith and trust in Jesus. So in the front seat, when you came in, there was a connect card. Fill out that connect card. Give us as much information as you feel comfortable with. On the back, it lets us know the next step you'd like to take. Maybe you want to be a part of the church. You can go to open house right after this. It's right after service, right in the back. Open house is an opportunity for us to tell you a little bit more about the church and get you connected to life. Maybe you want to join us for our 21 days of prayer and fasting that starts January 7th because you want to step into this new thing that God has. Or maybe the preliminary step is that you learn more about the gospel and know more about the Jesus that we're talking about today. So fill that out. Give us as much information as you feel comfortable. and We would love to help you take your next steps. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good, that you are a spell-binding, babalawo-defeating, voodoo-hurting God that triumphs over everything. Lord, I pray for everybody listening to me online and in this place that believes that they're under a curse, that believed at some point in time that they would never amount to anything. Father, we come against those words right now. We plead the blood of Jesus because, Lord, you said in the Bible that we are triumphant. You said that nothing can harm us. No, there's nothing in Scripture, Lord, that makes mention of the, of the power of any of these demonic forces having power over us. And so, Lord, I just pray for all those under the sound of my voice. Free them, heal them, bring about deliverance like only you can in the name of Jesus. And if you agree with that, why don't you say?